I sing of death, of splintering shrapnel tearing, of pale flesh splitting, of fire tongues licking, I sing of death. I sing of death, of cities burning, of mothers screaming, voices caught and smothered in wreckage flaming, I sing of death. I sing of death, of children firing, their bodies in the rifle pits earth hugging, of tank treads rolling, spinning, ceaselessly turning, I sing of death. I sing of kings falling, I sing of maidens weeping, I sing of idols crumbling, ideals burning, the razor cutting, sacred memorials imploding, I sing of death. Hear my voice, you men of the West, beyond your coin counting, beyond your clocks ticking, there is a place coming, there is a fire burning, there is a deeper yearning, I sing of death. From the poem, A Canto for Death. Hello and welcome to Battlecast. Yet again, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we're jumping right back into the pressure cooker with our third episode in a continuing series on the Battle of Berlin. And if you missed the first two episodes, you may want to check them out now, but if you like biting into the center of the Tootsie Pop, here it is. But before we get into the battle, I've got to thank Arthur and Molly from Canberra, Australia, and Blaine and Delaney from Borden, Indiana for buying us around. I've also got to thank Jim from Parts Unknown. And finally, I've got to thank Brandon from Manchester, Great Britain. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit that make a donation button. I also want to thank everyone who's written in telling me how much they've enjoyed this series so far. I've seen a lot of interest in this series and I'm very thankful you're here. But before I start gushing with gratitude, let's dive right back into the bloodbath that was the Battle of Berlin. All right. On April 20th, Hitler's 56th birthday, a million tragedies played out. I could spend 10 hours describing them in minute detail. Here are some of the highlights. Looping, like a song stuck on repeat, pain upon pain, heartbreak upon heartbreak. Now, while Hitler met with key supporters of his regime, such as von Ribbentrop, Goring, Albert Speer, Admiral Donitz, and others, the American Air Force, realizing it was Hitler's birthday, saluted the Fuhrer of the shrinking German Reich by raiding his capital with 299 B-17 bombers. The dignitaries could hear the bombs going off in the distance as the subdued birthday festivities proceeded. Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel observed this air raid, and he viewed the raid as a tangible symbol of the impotence the German nation had been reduced to. Keitel explains thus, quote, I observed the massive spectacle of a giant bombing raid from a little hill. There was no resistance. German fighter planes didn't join the battle to fend off the attack. Anti-aircraft guns were ineffective given the enemy's altitude. The air raid, lasting almost two hours, was carried out as if during peacetime maneuvers. In precise formations, the bombs being dropped exactly as commanded. It was pathetic. We us, Germany, with all of our pomp and great speeches, with all of our technical achievements and cultural triumphs, 
had been reduced to a helpless hive, unable to stop the exterminator, who leisurely trespassed our sky and fogged our cities with poisonous death. This was an empire of flies. End quote. From his bunker, Hitler responded to Benito Mussolini's happy birthday wishes with this following communication, quote, My thanks to you, Ducha, for your words of congratulation on my birthday. The battle that we are waging for our very existence has reached its climax. With unlimited deployment of ammunition, Bolshevism and the troops of Jewry are doing all in their power to unite their destructive forces in Germany and to throw our continent into chaos. In the spirit of dogged contempt for death, the German nation and all those who are similarly minded will halt this attack, however hard the struggle may be, and with our unique form of heroic courage, we will change the destiny of Europe for centuries to come. End quote. From this response, we can see Hitler's determination to keep the war going as long as possible, even though the situation was hopeless. After the Ruhr pocket fell on April 18th, there was no reason to keep fighting. The Soviets were in the suburbs of his capital, and the Americans were 20 miles away from his very seat. Key war fighting material was no longer being manufactured, and Hitler could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives of his own people if he had just surrendered or even committed suicide 10 days early. Instead, he dragged out the conflict sacrificing the property and lives of his own people in the process. Throughout Germany, soldiers were expected to celebrate Hitler's birthday and they were given extra food and alcohol in order to do it. For some men, the rations had the desired effect. They felt a genuine warmth for Hitler after they drank their nerves away. For others, however, with the country coming down around their eyes, no amount of alcohol could make them believe in final victory still. Throughout the shrinking Reich, German soldiers and civilians took part in celebrations for the Fuhrer. The Russians celebrated Hitler's birthday by shelling Berlin and raping the civilians behind their lines. In the capital itself, things began to break down. Previously, there were limits to the amount of alcohol you could buy. Now, proprietors tried to sell as much as they could before the Russians came and stole it all anyway. One Norwegian journalist said the city was coming apart at the seams. This is what he saw, quote, the barricades are everywhere. They're built of cobblestones and reinforced with all kinds of rubbish, rusted cars, bathtubs. They don't look too imposing to me, and I can imagine the Russian tanks will run right over them. In the press club, the disintegration is complete. The offices are a chaos of paper, shards of glass, chairs and tables, all scattered everywhere under a trickle of chalk dust. No receptionists, no censorship. Everything is in flux. It looks as if all press activity from Berlin has ceased. The waitresses huddle together on the stairs when the cannon roar. There's no food to be had. Even the bar is shut down. Most of the reporters have fled the city. Even now, one must talk of Berlin as a city under siege, as if... By miracle, telephone calls from Stockholm and Copenhagen are still coming through, and lucky individuals are able to send sensational telegrams home. No one bothers about censorship anymore. Everything's in a state of total breakdown. Listen, listen. They say at the end, listen, that's the thundering cannon in the streets of Berlin itself. End quote. Another Danish journalist couldn't believe anti-Nazi propaganda was openly being distributed in Berlin. It never would have happened in the previous 12 years. The little anti-Nazi posters and leaflets were a tangible symbol that things really were falling apart in the Reich. The journalist describes the situation like this, quote, 
This time it's the Fuhrer's last birthday, the Berliners are saying. In years past, they called out, Heil! Now they hate the man who calls himself their leader. They hate him. They fear him. They suffer misery and death because of him. But they have neither the strength nor the courage to free themselves from his demonic power. They wait desperate and passive for the final act of the war. Last night, unknown hands put up a big rough and ready banner on a ruin. The lettering appears across the walls of the first floor of a giant hotel, and it reads, For all of this, we thank the Fuhrer. The phrase is well known, you know. It was invented by Dr. Goebbels. The words have been used countless times across radio broadcasts, across the lengths and breadth of the Reich, but they were never intended as an epitaph for Germany's ruins. End quote. Concurrently, Joseph Goebbels was delivering panegyrics of praise to Adolf Hitler, the man who had led Germany and the entire continent of Europe into total disaster. There is a religious need in man, and after men in the West gave up God, they replaced him with political religions. And you, do you think you don't have an irrational political religion? Think about it. If there's no God and we're all just evolved matter in motion, just empty products of chance, why do we need equity? And for conservatives, a laughable term when you don't conserve anything, why do we need liberty? We're all just atomic goop evolved into monkeys. Why shouldn't the best and brightest monkeys have more? It's just one monkey taking from another monkey. Now, I want to be clear. I don't believe this personally. I believe that men have a purpose in life and there is a basic dignity to men. But many of you need to face up to the schizophrenic nature of your basic values. They conflict with one another, brother. Anyway, here's how Dr. Goebbels, the Reich Minister of Propaganda, eulogized Hitler on his birthday. Quote, He, Adolf Hitler, is the core of the resistance against the fall of the world. He is Germany's bravest heart and our people's most glowing will. I myself allow a judgment about this, and it must be said today, if the nation is still breathing, if the chance of victory still lies ahead, if there is still a way out of this deadly serious danger, we have him to thank for it. He is steadfastness personified. I never saw him become uncertain or despondent once, weak or weary, never. He will go his own way to the very end, and what awaits him there is not the downfall of his people, but a new and happy start to a flowering of all things German. We all have our eyes on him, filled with hope and with deep, unshakable conviction. Defiant and combative, we stand behind him, soldier and civilian, man and woman and child, a people resolved to the bitter end, for it is a matter of life and honor. He is to keep his eyes on his enemies. For that reason, promise him that he need not look behind him. We will not waver or yield. We will not leave him in the lurch at any time, be it in the most breathtaking and the most dangerous time. We stand by him as he stands by us in Teutonic loyalty to his followers as we have sworn and we want to keep our vow. Fuhrer, give us an order and we will follow. We fill him inside and around us everywhere. End quote. Goebbels sounds like he's talking about a god rather than a man. Later that day, Hitler made his last public appearance in the courtyard of the Chancellery. He reviewed some of the Hitler youth's best tank hunters. Many of the teens had already been wounded, their arms and heads roughly bandaged and leaking blood. For their entire lives, they had been told how great Hitler was, how strong and how powerful. Their eyes couldn't believe what they saw when he actually appeared before them. Arthur Axman. The head of the Hitler Youth Organization was there. This is what he saw, quote, I reported to the Fuhrer. Then he walked along the front of the delegation with me. He walked with a slightly bent posture and held his trembling hands clasped at his back. 
He delivered a brief address. He compared our people with a seriously ill patient for whom science still had a medication that would save him at the last minute, but it was crucial that the patient retain his will to live. The battle for Berlin had to be won. He ended his words with this exclamation, Heil to you! There was no reply, only shocked silence. The enemy was already only a few kilometers away. What was astonishing was the strength of will and the resolution that this man still emanated. Everyone was under his spell, myself included, end quote. Notice those last lines, everyone was under Hitler's spell. The idea that Hitler had a sort of magical magnetism was repeated by many eyewitnesses during all the years of the Third Reich. A few blocks away, Friedrich Grinzemann was given leave to go home for a few hours. While he was there, his father, who had just recently been drafted into the Volkssturm, walked into the living room. Both men thought it would be their last farewell. You fathers, imagine saying goodbye to your son and sitting him out to die in a lost cause against overwhelming odds and a merciless enemy. Here's how Grinzemann describes their last parting. Quote, it was time to say farewell. We didn't say much to each other. When he was finished, he gave me his pistol. It's over, my child. Promise me you'll shoot yourself when the Russians come. Otherwise, I won't have another moment of peace. He also instructed me to keep the barrel in my mouth when I killed myself. Then there was another hug and a kiss. All in silence, he went. Outside, Dr. Ott was waiting in the car. My father got in, and they set off around the corner into the Mannheimer Strasse. He raised his right arm. It wasn't a Hitler salute exactly, but it wasn't a wave either. Only five years later, skeleton parts were found in the zoo during an excavation and scraps of a post office savings book card. You see, I had the savings book card at the time, and he had kept the card for me. Later, the German government identified the owner. It must have been my father because he was assigned for deployment nearby to protect Goebbels' private villa. My father was then interred in a mass grave in Berlin. He gave his life so Goebbels' marble floor might live, end quote. Down the street, Eva Richter was walking home, trying to dodge the incessant artillery shells bursting all around her. She was talking with a woman down the hall when she heard something small clatter at her feet, like a remote control falling on a tile floor. Ava lazily looked down, and then a shockwave of horror bombshelled throughout her nervous system. Her eyes wide like coffee saucers. She saw a grenade had fallen right under her feet. Ava picks up the story like this, quote, A grenade exploded right next to me, and the detonator hit me. I fell to the floor with a scream, the like of which I've never uttered before in my life. On that day, I said farewell to the healthy life I had lived hitherto. The detonator had shredded my calf. The doctors did everything they could to save the leg. One day later, the doctor told me it would have to be amputated. At that moment, I couldn't pray to God. I doubted his existence. I agreed to the operation, silently hoping that I wouldn't wake up after it, but three hours Hours later, the nurse brought me back to life. I woke up with only one sound leg. My left calf was missing, and the knee had to be removed as well. End quote. About 12 miles away, amid one of the greatest mass movements of human beings in the history of the universe, Helmut Altner was suddenly woken up by a screaming voice. Outside with your packs! The Russians! 
The man who screamed the sentences disappears into the night like a ghost, leaving his words hanging in the air. A match flares. I quickly slip on my pack with unsteady hands, grabbing what I can in the dark and stumble out. We stand in front of the dugout, shocked and drunk with sleep. Figures are running across the hill, machine gun bursts are spewing over the roadway and grenades exploding with a flash in the darkness. We move out. The anti-tank barrier stands threateningly on the road, and the remains of the windmill glimmer red in the night. We only have one thought, and that is to get out of this bloody mess. The village is under heavy shell fire, with flames rising as high as houses, the shells rushing over our heads to explode with a roar. We have no choice. We have to get through. We run along the street with the houses spurting fountains of sand and stone at us. Burning beams whirl up in the air. The howling and bursting of shells goes on all around us. The sound alone is enough to scare a man to death. Flames everywhere. Everything around me seemed to glow from the ghostly fires. I am calm. Well, naturally calm, really. I run through the hell, jump, fall, and pick myself up again. There's no end to it. We race ahead as if pursued by demons in a race with death. We have broken through the area of the barrage. Our tongues stick to our gums. Our bodies are bathed in sweat, and our lungs suck in the fresh air in gulps. We have come through once more. The village lies behind us like a nightmare, as if the American horror character Freddy Krueger had implanted it in our dreams. Kohler has been wounded and we have to help him. I enter the barn and find the 16-year-old whimpering in the straw. He's got a splinter in his leg. It's huge. He only felt a slight blow, no pain, and he hurried on, adrenaline coating his nerve endings from the pain signals. When we slowed down, it caught up with him, though, and he collapsed in the road. The pain shows in his eyes, but there's no tears. He doesn't cry. The tears have been burnt away, and he would rather die than cry in front of us. We pull the boots off his feet and carefully remove his trousers. His underpants are wet and red, blood pouring from the fresh wound. We cut the leg of his underpants off with scissors. He does not make a sound. What we human beings can take, I tell you. I look for the splinter with the light of a candle. The skin has been cut just above the knee. We slowly pull the long splinter out of the wound. Then we put the leg in splints and bandage it up. We carefully pull his trousers on again. Blood is running wet and warm in his boots. Then we carry him outside. His features look as if they have been chiseled out, as if we were a marble statue carved by the Italian masters themselves. He is our youngest, and he's learned not to cry. We've all learned not to cry. Later that day, low-flying aircraft roar over our heads, skimming the treetops and the meadows. We look down and stay quiet, waiting for the tacking of machine guns, the thunder of their cannon for death, silent and bitter. But nothing happens. The bird streak past, singing in the skies, we are a defeated army, a defeated people. The flood of refugees shows no signs of abating. Weapons and equipment are strewn all over the fields. All are ruled by the same thought, get away. Get away from the front and to the safe haven of the hinterland. A few miles later, I pull the boots off my aching feet. The soles of my feet are white as if dead and covered in blisters. A few minutes later, we're marching again. I feel the pus and blood congealing and clinging like snot to my feet. Low-flying aircraft have set the woods alight all around us. Sometimes ribbons of flames burst out over our heads. The undergrowth crackles and burns, bringing tears to our eyes. Big trucks rush past their draught, raising clouds of dust and causing the trees to flare up again. Our throats are burning, our tongues sticking to our gums. Will the pain never end? Machine guns tack in the woods quite close to the Russians. Was all of this pain and hardship and killing for nothing? 
We run and march, our lungs gasping. We dare not discard our packs. This is the last gap in the encirclement. We run. Darkness falls, the wood glows blood red, and the machine guns hammer away throughout the night, chattering. Imagine a glowing red coal. That's what the entire forest looked like around us. The fire was burning within the quick of the trees itself, randomly bursting out through the bark at you. We have gotten through. Behind us, salvos of rifle fire ring out. The gap has been closed behind us. The encirclement is complete. And our strength is drained, totally drained. We can only continue by creeping along. I go on tiptoe. I would like to drop dead. Has the pain no end? End quote. At the same time, Zukov's breakthrough, which I told you about last month, the breakthrough on the direct Berlin axis, right in the middle, had split the German Ninth Army into three main chunks. And now the three major groupings were retreating westward, the Soviets hard on their heels the whole time. Those fragments, not connected with one of the three main groupings of the Ninth Army, were being swept up and easily destroyed by the concentrated Russian armies. By this time, the main body of the Ninth Army was below the city of Berlin, 20 miles away and unable to help the military situation in the capital itself. However, numerous large groupings of the Ninth Army, such as the 101 Corps, did make their way to the capital and join in the defense of the seat of Nazi power. All right, right now I want to give you a bird's eye view of the situation on April 20th and 21st. Imagine three main German battle groupings. One is 20 miles north above Berlin. This is Steiner's army group. Then there is the tens of thousands of troops in the city of Berlin itself, composed of Volkssturm, hardcore SS fanatics, various scratch units, and a large contingent of Hitler youth. I mean, a very large contingent. Finally, there's a large grouping of the Ninth Army, 20 miles below Berlin, constantly in danger of being encircled, which is struggling to defend itself, let alone help in the defense of the city. Ultimately, these three main forces will be unable to link up, though Hitler repeatedly tried to get all outside forces to counterattack and relieve Berlin. It was asking the impossible, and the three army groups would stay mostly split apart for the rest of the war. In fact, when Hitler found out Steiner's scattered forces had not even issued the order to counterattack the Russians and relieve Berlin, he flew into his famous rage that was depicted in the film Downfall and turned it to a famous YouTube meme about a decade ago. Now keep in mind, thousands of troops are spread out over hundreds of square miles around Berlin. Many of these scattered units did infiltrate back into the city itself. Finally, about 30 miles west of Berlin is Vink's 12th Army. Now on the morning of April 20th, Vink's Army Group was tasked with holding back the Western Allies, but by this point the British and Americans were so close to Berlin, Hitler believed Vink could basically leave a screening force to delay the Western Allies while Vink's main body counterattacked towards Berlin and linked up with the city's defenders. In fact, this is the only counterattack that was ever seriously attempted. Vank did attack towards Berlin on April 22nd, an attack which I'll describe later on, but right now I want you to have a bird's eye view of what's going on in the battlefield. By deciding to disengage Vank from the Americans, Hitler is essentially playing his last card. Now at the same time, already on April 20th, there were Soviet mechanized and infantry armies pouring all around the area immediately outside Berlin. Now, none of these Russian units reached the city suburbs until April 21st, but they are slowly shrinking the area of German control around the capital. Okay, so bear with me here when I do a little bar trick with you. It'll help if you're drinking right now, okay? 
Take your left hand and point your pointer finger like you're pointing at something interesting. For instance, a great website called thebattlecast.com. Now, face your pointer finger towards your right hand and form a Pac-Man mouth with your right hand. Okay, then have your Pac-Man mouth completely swallow your pointer finger with the tips of your right hand fingers and thumb pinching the bottom knuckle of your left hand's extended pointer finger. Your pointer finger is Berlin and its surrounding suburbs, while your crab-like pinching right hand is the Soviet armies surrounding Berlin. That is precisely the way Berlin was surrounded on April 25th, 1945. After April 25th, all the Red Army and General Zhukov did was squeeze, breaking every little bone in the pointer finger of Berlin and sending the thousand-year right crashing down in flames. As always, there are great maps up on the website. In fact, the maps up on the site this time form the definitive collection of maps ever assembled in one place on the Battle of Berlin. I highly suggest you check them out. So that's your bird's eye view of how the second stage of the Battle of Berlin developed. First, there was Konyev's breakthrough in the south. Then, Zhukov broke through on a direct line straight down the middle towards Berlin. Finally, on April 20th, yet another fresh Soviet army group, this one called the 2nd Bielorussian Army Group, led by a general named Konstantin Rokozovsky, attacked in the north with five armies above Berlin. This army group drove west and northwest further hammering the German forces in the north and driving an even deeper wedge between German forces in the capital and those north of the city. Rokozovsky's massive attack dashed any Axis hope of substantial relief coming to Berlin from the north. Over the coming days, Rokozovsky drove on the northern German port cities along the Baltic Sea, further collapsing the territory of the Reich. The fighting in the north was just as bad as the fight in the exurbs of Berlin. One foreign SS volunteer remembered what it was like defending the Oder River at a town called Stettin with these words, quote, The losses were frightening. In three days, 60% of the defenders of our sector were killed or wounded. Entrenched in their foxholes with only the head and arms protruding, they would be wounded most likely in the face by the bursts of shells and grenades. They would run up to my little post with a monstrous bloody hole instead of a jawbone. Often their tongues would still be panting, feverishly pink and hanging from the wound. Twenty-five or thirty wounded would arrive at once. Some who had been hit while running had steel shrapnel buried in their sexual organs. These shivered horribly, their complexions blue. I still had to command and see to everything amid the smells and coagulated blood and smeared excrement among the sweaty linens. The shelters were flattened one by one. On the very first day, my command post was hit head-on and reduced to dust only two minutes after I had left it. The freezing cellar, where I passed the last night directing combat by the light of a candle was hit by a shell that went right through the ceiling and landed in the middle of the onlookers without exploding. I hurried to our little forward post, for at one o'clock in the morning the Soviets had just broken the line on our right wing. Our men were fighting admirably, clinging to the bank of a railroad line. We refused to give up, sometimes fighting to the last man, but the enemy had broken through nonetheless." End quote. Meanwhile, back at the Zilau Heights, German military units were struggling for their own survival on the night of April 19th and the morning of April 20th. When dawn came on April 20th, there no longer was any front line to resist the Russian advance. Don't get me wrong, pockets of Germans still resisted the Soviets, but they were easily bypassed and liquidated one by one at leisure. 
As the German defenders retreated, they were hampered by civilian refugees who were themselves fleeing the Russian onslaught. Thousands of defenders were cut off in this way. Soviet units were everywhere. When T-34 tanks attacked one airfield, the defenders depressed their 88mm anti-aircraft guns to battle ground targets. Every soldier on the ground knew the battle west of Berlin was over. For General Wiedling, commander of the German 56th Tank Corps, April 20th was, quote, the worst day for all German troops. They had suffered tremendous losses in previous fighting. They were worn down and exhausted and were no longer able to resist the tremendous thrust of the superior Russian forces. End quote. Oberleutnant Willy Groner was part of a unit that maintained their discipline in a fighting withdrawal back to Berlin. This is how he described the retreat to the capital. Quote, Despite the growing chaos and wild rumors, the men in my unit hadn't been so overcome by panic that we lost our cohesion, thank God. We always remained perfectly united. Since our successful stalling operation on Zilau Heights, we had retreated, fighting hard the whole way, but never giving up. Even when we lost contact with our commanding officers, we still strictly enforced orders. These orders can be summed up in one word, hold on. We had to cede as little ground as possible to the enemy in order to allow the forces which we thought were rallying to launch the counteroffensive which would push the Russians back. When we received enough ammunition, which, alas, did not happen very often, I concealed my battle group in every village, every grove, and every railroad embankment during the withdrawal. We thus kept enemy infantry at bay. Only their artillery managed to dislodge us. Whenever I could, I saved my men's lives. That's why I only had three men killed and seven wounded, while we inflicted severe losses on the enemy. Unfortunately, other German units had not maintained our level of cohesion. We were constantly running into regiments who had given up hope and were mingled with the columns of civilians who continued to flee on roads. Disgraceful troops with plenty of ammunition and firearms even left the front line to, quote, rally in the rear. Bullshit. I wasn't much of a strategist, but I realized that if our leadership had been more consistent, we could easily have inflicted severe losses on the Reds. In many places, we had seen their tanks pass by without being followed by infantry and fuel. It would not be long, and their tanks were going to find themselves without power, isolated, and in terrible difficulties with Hitler Youth shoving Panzerfaust down their turrets. Hour by hour, we wondered why our reserves did not attack the Russian tanks from behind. Many rumors were circulating at that time about a massive counterattack that would soon take the Russians out. The rumor was that Hitler had just made an arrangement with the Americans and they were opposed to the capture of Berlin by the Russians. The Americans were going to come and lend us a hand in the defense of the city. Our confidence in the political and military genius of the Fuhrer was still intact. Not for a single moment did we imagine that he would let our capital, I mean the capital of our entire culture, our people, fall into the hands of the Ivans. At worst, we would have preferred it if the British or the Americans, our fellow Westerners, had seized it." End quote. Willie's quote helps us understand why many men continue to fight even though the situation seemed hopeless. You need to keep in mind many of these men had literally been raised under Nazi rule. They had a total, almost religious faith in the Fuhrer. Don't laugh. Many of you have a religious faith in liberal values. You've been raised with it. It's in the air you breathe. That's why Americans keep experimenting with different forms of mental health care for criminals instead of punishments, with dialogue instead of oppression. Don't mistake me. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. As Julian Frun notes, there are many things to enjoy in the liberal West. I freely admit this. 
What I am saying is Americans, especially well-educated, wealthy, and very safe Americans, have been raised to believe in dialogue, the capacity of education to improve humans, the mere belief that all humans have dignity and can be improved. These are all liberal values that, as Julian Fruin notes in his excellent article entitled Decadence, are simply secularized post-Christian values. It's Christianity without Christ. Nazism worked the same way for Nazis. They believed if they just tried harder and fought more brutally, they would come out on top because the strongest survives. It's just what Darwin and Nietzsche had basically taught. Moreover, the Germans weren't cynical like we are. Their propaganda was more simple than ours. When Goebbels got on the radio and asked Germans to hold out for two or three more days because after Roosevelt died, Hitler was going to make a deal with the Americans, the German people believed what Goebbels told them. For example, in the excellent documentary series, The World at War, one German teenager recounts the time she rolled her eyes and openly expressed her disbelief when Goebbels said the Germans were about to make a deal and drive the Russians out of Germany. Her mother gave her a look of blank confusion and said, My dear daughter, do you think Dr. Goebbels would lie at a time like this? The mother really believed Goebbels, a flagrant womanizer. Every day Goebbels was lying to his own wife, and this lady couldn't conceive he would lie to her. Their gullibility reminds me of Philip Larkin's famous lines, quote, Never such innocence, never before or since, as changed itself to pass without a word, the men leaving the gardens tidy, the thousands of marriages lasting a little while longer, never such innocence again. Here's another reason for the cynicism and corruption in the West. Our leaders have failed us. They've lied to us. Our fathers believed in them. My grandfather would kick out his own brother if he didn't stand and put his hand over his heart during the national anthem. I saw him do this with my own eyes more than once. When the president told my grandfather something, he believed it. He probably would have assaulted the men on Saturday Night Live who made a sketch belittling either Joe Biden or Donald Trump, a veteran of World War II. He had a reverence for the men who led this nation. Now when I drive in rural areas, I see Let's Go Brandon signs on every 10th house, a naked disrespect for the President of America. We've lost the reverence my grandfather had, and many of your great-grandfathers had it as well. And the Germans lost it too after the war, but not before the bitter end. That's why so many continued to fight in the face of a hopeless situation during the conflict. Here's how one German soldier described his disillusionment after the Battle of Berlin and the loss of the war. Quote, the world appears hopeless and bleak to me. The biggest screamers, who were already in the party when it barely even existed, you know. They now say they never were in the Nazi party and they always hated Nazism. Yeah, I've learned bitter wisdom and I've paid with my faith. Had to pay with a shattered world of ideals. Within me it is bleak. I was once an idealist, today I'm no longer one. What is man except misery, full of pain? I think of all the young comrades who in all this disastrous confusion never found that they had been wasted. Will they find belief in anything ever again? End quote. Another German teenager said amid the ruins of Berlin, Give everything up. Life has lost all its meaning. Still another German soldier later described his mentality with these words, quote, In those early days after the war, I still didn't see how the German people had been misused. We men had been educated to stubborn, blind obedience. By the end of the war, I had certainly become more critical, but I still wasn't cured from my blind obedience." Quote. Granted, many German soldiers did not continue to fight at the Battle of Berlin. Don't get me wrong. 
Still, hundreds of thousands continue to actively defend the collapsing Reich, folding all around them like a letter in an envelope. In his book, Front Soldaten, Stephen Fritz helps us understand these men's motivation. Quote, the hard fact is many professional German soldiers fought courageously and with great determination in the service of a deplorable regime engaged in unprecedented atrocities. To the very end of the war, Hitler retained an amazing popularity with German soldiers. As late as November 1944, almost two-thirds of German prisoners of war in American hands professed support for the Fuhrer. Even in March 1945, when Nazi Germany was literally falling to pieces, Joseph Goebbels said the troops had a mystical faith in Hitler, that the men had been fighting like savage fanatics, and that the soldiers would continue to do their duty. There were no mutinies by common soldiers in the Wehrmacht. In a very real sense, the soldiers had become Nazified. Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel acknowledged the importance of the educational process leading from the Hitler Youth to the Labor Service and then to the Army. End quote. The German soldiers' commanding officers pleaded with them to hold on for just a few more days, and the Fuhrer would make a deal with the Americans and everything would be put right. Almost all the sources mentioned some variant on this hope from high-ranking officials, intelligent men such as Albert Speer, all the way down to everyday SS volunteers like Eric Wallen. Conditioned to blind obedience, the men fighting for Hitler never considered their leaders were just making up a story to keep them fighting. Swedish SS trooper and Berlin frontline soldier Eric Wallen helps us understand the effect the rumors of a deal with the Western Allies had on his men. Quote, our spirits had sunk steadily during the last days and had come dangerously close to zero. In the middle of this heavy depression, new rumors suddenly began to circulate. They popped up here and there and spread like wildfire from man to man. The rumors that woke us up from our mechanical trance-like defensive fighting and gave us new hope and new spirit said that the Reichsfuhrer SS Himmler had contacted the Supreme Commander of the Western Allies, Eisenhower. It was said that he, after having heard Himmler's narration of the Red Danger, had realized the equally great effect on the British and Americans of this danger. It was a danger to the whole Western world. They had now supposedly agreed about a common struggle against Bolshevism before the Red Army reached Berlin. At last, year after year, the greatest Germanic peoples had been in bitter, bloody feuding with each other in war between brothers, while their common enemy had taken advantage of the situation to force his way deeper into Europe. Now, in the darkest hours of the West, the previous adversaries could be joined and face the imminent threat. It was too wonderful to be true, but we believed, because what else should we believe in, and what else could we hope for, there, a few miles from the heart of the German capital? We found new strength, tightened our helmets, and fought with new determination. We no longer had the attitude of a death sentence, to sell your life as dearly as possible, but instead, we went on cheerfully and hopefully like those certain of victory. Certainly, it would be enough if just our own comrades in the West would be made available and come to our help. We would hit the Bolsheviks outside Berlin, chase them eastward, annihilate the entire Red Army, and smash the Soviet regime to pieces so that it should never be able to rise again. These were our prodigious thoughts. 
They had been lying, smoldering in the subconscious during the difficult years of constant retreat and had kept the fighting spirit alive. Now they rose up in full strength and lit our enthusiasm once again. There was a new spring in our step. Our bearing was more upright and we made use of our weapons with exultant rage. Once again we sang during troop movements and hurrahed while storming forth in counterattacks in the teeth of artillery, heavy infantry, and tanks. The man fought with feverish eagerness. All of us were convinced that the Red Army would soon meet a withering defeat. End quote. Of course, I need to point out that this is an SS volunteer, a fanatical anti-communist and fascist talking. Many Folksturm and everyday Wehrmacht soldiers did not share the renewed vigor Eric and his fellow SS fanatics felt when the rumors of a deal with the British and Americans first began circulating among the troops. However, a large number of the new Hitler Youth children in uniform did believe the rumors, and they fought with a courage and tenacity that is literally beyond description. To put the situation succinctly, I can say categorically that hundreds of thousands of German troops did hold on, and there was never a chance for a deal with the Americans or the British. All of those men died for a cause that was already lost. And hundreds of thousands of Soviet men were killed and wounded in the death throes of Nazism as well. About 30,000 Russians died in three days of fighting on the Zilau Heights alone. That's a good-sized suburb in America. What does that kind of death look like? Bodies everywhere, bodies implanted in the ground, their rigor mortis stiff limbs rising from the artillery tilled earth like newly planted trees, bodies dismembered and run over in the dirt like the cadavers of mutilated roadkill we all blithely drive by on our way to work, human heads with half their faces blown off, with eyes bleeding rivulets of congealing gore, with faces smashed in, this one impacted by a flying rock suffusing the stone in facial detritus, this other one with the surprised face of a hand some youth as if he was a leading actor in the film Starship Troopers. The protruding jaw is still clean and shaven, the blue eyes still staring into the distance. Then you see it, a small hole where the shrapnel entered the skull and passed into the cranial cavity where it turned the youth's brain into runny, scrambled eggs. And all those bodies were manufactured in a battle which had a foregone conclusion. In and around the retreating Germans, the Russians were looting. Whole villages were basically destroyed. Tens of thousands of women were raped. Maybe hundreds of thousands, no one really knows. Sisters and widows of fallen soldiers who had borne terrible rationing for years and had given their sons and brothers and husbands for the Reich now suffered this last indignity. No one knows, like I told you before, the exact number of women who were raped. For years, many Germans refused to even talk about it. I know some of you listening to this are sympathetic to Nazism. As the former owner of the hardcore war game manufacturer Avalon Hill noted, there were few war games designed for the battles which took place in Asia during World War II because no players ever wanted to play as the Japanese. But Avalon Hill manufactured hundreds of games revolving around the war in Europe. Nobody had a problem playing as the Germans. If you have these sympathies, I challenge you to read the book and watch the film A Woman in Berlin. Don't take this lightly. Please don't roll your eyes when I tell you this, but violence really does provoke violence. It's not just some liberal slogan. The perpetrator almost always becomes the victim. And if you don't believe me, just ask the hundreds of thousands of women who were raped at the fall of the Reich, along with the thousands of Hitler youth who gave their lives, their everything, for men who later said the German people were not good enough for them. How much more could a people have conceivably sacrificed for their leaders? They fought and they stayed loyal all the way to the end, 
and listen to how Hitler repaid them. When Hitler ordered everything destroyed as the Russians advanced into German territory, Albert Speer refused to carry out his orders because it would have caused enormous suffering for regular German people. This is how Hitler responded to Speer's concern for the people. Quote, if the war is lost, the people will be lost also. It's not necessary to worry about what the German people will need for elemental survival. On the contrary, it's best for us to destroy these things ourselves, for the nation has proved to be the weaker, and the future belongs solely to the stronger eastern nation. In any case, only those who are inferior will remain after this struggle, because our best people have already been killed in battle." End quote. Here's how Goebbels described his contempt for the German people in the last days of the conflict. Quote, what can you do with a people whose men won't even fight when their women are raped? All the plans, all the ideals of National Socialism are too high, too noble for these German people. They deserve the fate that will now descend on them. But then Goebbels looked at his aides with a sort of smirk and declared, And you, why have you worked for me? Now you'll have your little throats cut. But when we step down, let the whole earth tremble, end quote. By nightfall on April 20th, men were deserting everywhere. Individuals simply left their units and never came back. One estimate claimed more than 50,000 men were hiding in Berlin. These are men who were drafted soldiers just waiting for the war to be over. However, Tens of thousands of fanatical fascists volunteered to continue fighting. When their former general was relieved of duty, the Frenchmen of the SS Charlemagne were given a choice by their new commander, SS Major General Krakenberg, as to whether they wanted to continue the fight or not. Hundreds of the French SS men volunteered to continue the struggle and infiltrate back into Berlin itself in order to defend the capital of fascism in Western Europe. It was also on the night of April 20th that Zhukov's artillery first began to bombard the streets of Berlin. By that time, Zhukov was just a few miles away. And what stood between Georgi Zhukov and Adolf Hitler? Not much. At dawn on April 16th, on paper, Hitler could call on about one million men to defend the capital of the Reich. But by midnight on April 20th, the vast majority of these men were dead, wounded, hiding, or trapped outside of Berlin. In the immediate area of the city itself, I'm talking about the metro Berlin area, Hitler's forces numbered about 100,000 men. And I'm not talking about 100,000 of the best men either. Many of these defenders were ill-trained Volkssturm. However, I need to stress that no one knows the exact number of combatants in the final days of the battle. For example, the Soviets claimed more than 180,000 Germans took part in the Battle of Berlin itself, the battle immediately in the metro Berlin area. The truth of this claim will never be known, but what is known is that Hitler's 100,000 or 150,000 men were expected to defend the city from one and a half million Soviet troops, armed with almost inexhaustible amounts of ammunition, artillery, and tanks. Antony Bivor describes the state of the German forces in Metro Berlin with these words, quote, German officers were supposed to defend Berlin with about 45,000 Wehrmacht and SS troops and just over 40,000 Volkssturm. In addition, the Germans had about 60 tanks in the city. Finally, in the central government district, SS Brigade Führer Monka commanded over 2,000 men from his base in the Reich Chancellery. Now, Monka's 2,000 men weren't any ordinary soldiers. These were battle-hardened veterans who were the elite of the Waffen-SS. In fact, they were the first Waffen-SS unit and the only unit to have Hitler's own name in their unit designation, roughly translated, the Guardians of Adolf Hitler's Life. 
James O'Donnell, in his excellent book, The Bunker, provides this description of the 2,000 men tasked with defending Berlin's government district and the Fuhrer himself. Quote, they were Hitler's Praetorian Guards. Its official military designation was Leibenstadte Adolf Hitler, which means lifeguards Adolf Hitler. The LAH had begun as an honor guard about the size of a platoon. The recruits were all tall, all young, all volunteers. This guard was first set up in 1934. In a very few years, it became part of what was later to be called the Waffen-SS. It grew to battalion size before the outbreak of war and in 1940 was already a motorized panzer regiment. Its home headquarters was in Berlin's large field cadet barracks. The Reichschancellery barracks were used only when Hitler was in Berlin. By 1941, the LAH had become the first of the elite divisions of the Waffen-SS. Major General Wilhelm Monka, its last commanding general, had begun the war as a captain and company commander. Kampfgruppe, or battle group Monka, was largely composed of LAH veterans. Most were wounded men with frontline experience. This explains their presence in early 1945 in downtown Berlin. Although the Liebenstarte, like so much in the Third Reich, had vastly outgrown its original function, it still retained its bodyguard role and its personal link to the Fuhrer. It was the only division that bore Hitler's name, and from its members, the personal guard of Adolf Hitler were recruited. This consisted of a detachment of some 40 men, 10 officers, and 30 enlisted men, most of them handsome and strapping SS stalwarts, many highly decorated. Hitler used the enlisted men not only for normal guard duties, but also as orderlies, valets, waiters, couriers. The officers supervised the mounting of the guard. Often, service tended to rotate. That is, you would go from the personal guard back to the fighting Adolf Hitler LAH at the front line and then back again. But when Hitler took a special personal interest in one of the young soldiers, particularly those who had been wounded, the job could become permanent. The enlisted men who served him personally were thus usually much closer to the Fuhrer than many of the officers. Many of these men knew Hitler immediately and had received personal career advancements from him. In addition, they were fanatical National Socialists, chosen for both their physical and ideological fervor. There was no way these guys would go down without a fight. Every one of them was a tiger, and these were the human shields defending the government district of Berlin where the worst fighting took place. John Keegan picks up the story with these words, quote, by April 19th, Zhukov's massive army group had cracked all three defense belts near the Oder River and were very near to the immediate suburbs of Berlin. On that same night, Rokozovsky's giant army group began its attack in northern Germany, 86 miles north of Zhukov's forces. Meanwhile, yet another Soviet army group under Marshal Konyev's tank armies was attempting to break into the Berlin region on the night of April 20th. By this time, Russian artillery was decimating the city itself, which was already largely reduced to rubble by Anglo-American air bombardment. However, the Russians' new rubble makes a formidable fortress, even for boys and old men armed with Panzerfaust, end quote. Now, before we move on, I want to describe the effect the near-continuous bombing of Berlin had on the city. Albert Speer, the inestimably talented Minister of Armaments and Munitions, was an eyewitness to one bombing raid. This is what he saw, quote, I was having a conference in my office on November 22, 1943, when the air raid alarm sounded. A large fleet of bombers was reported heading towards Berlin. 
When the bombers got close, I drove to a nearby flak tower, intending to watch the attack from its platform because I would have panoramic views of the city from the tower. I had scarcely reached the top of the tower when I had to take shelter inside it. In spite of the tower's stout concrete walls, heavy hits nearby were shaking it, and this was one of the three most secure places in Berlin, and it was shaking under the impact of the bombardment. Injured anti-aircraft gunners crowded down the stairs behind me. The air pressure from the exploding bombs had hurled them into the walls. For 20 minutes, explosion followed explosion, as regular and recurring as the rotation of blades in a desk fan. From above, I looked down into the well of the tower, where a closely packed crowd stood in the thickening haze formed by cement dust falling from the walls. The white dust was everywhere, covering the city in inch-deep powder, choking the lungs of the teeming crowds below me. When the rain of bombs ceased, I ventured out on the platform again. My nearby ministry was one gigantic conflagration. I drove there at once. A few female clerks were trying to save files, even while isolated time bombs went off in the vicinity. In place of my private office, I found nothing but a huge bomb crater. The fire spread so quickly that nothing more could be rescued. From the flak tower, the air raids on Berlin were an unforgettable sight, and I had to constantly remind myself of the cruel reality in order to not be completely entranced by the scene. The illumination of the parachute flares followed by flashes of explosions caught in the cloud of smoke and dust, the innumerable probing searchlights, the excitement when a plane was caught and tried to escape the cone of light, the brief flaming torch when it was hit. The streets were strewn with rubble, lined by burning houses. There was a sinister atmosphere full of biting smoke, soot, and flames. Above the city hung a cloud of smoke. Even by day it made the macabre scene as dark as night, blotting out the sun so the capital of the Reich lived in a sort of perpetual darkness. There's no doubt about it, this apocalypse provided a magnificent spectacle. End quote. This is Speer describing one bombing raid on Berlin. The capital had been bombed hundreds of more times by April 20th. A tremendous black cloud hung over the middle of the city, a physical reminder of the destruction that was coming upon it, and the cloud lingered more or less opaque for the next year and a half. An eyewitness described it years later, hovering over the city, bathing it in a blue-gray haze. It smothered everything with the dark smoke of vast conflagrations. This is rarely spoken about in films and books about Berlin in 1944 and 1945, but it's important to remember Berlin was a city bathed in darkness, both physically and figuratively. The city center was a painting of destruction. But the further you fanned out from Berlin and the more you got into the suburbs, the destruction lessened. Small towns were often spared from bombings and were only mauled by war when the front line passed over it. Here's how Eric Wallen, a member of the SS Nordland Division, comprised mostly of Scandinavian volunteers, remembered the areas outside Berlin in his book Twilight of the Gods. Quote, we were getting closer to Berlin. The landscape changed character. We drove into the pine forest of Mark Brandenburg, where small lakes glittered between the trees, weekend cottages, taverns, and small refreshment inns for cyclists and motorists who used to come from Berlin on Sunday trips became more and more numerous. Now they were empty. The forces from the east just kept on moving forward in the same inexhaustible stream as before. They pressed us implacably back, closer and closer to Berlin. The forest belt grew thinner and gradually gave way to smaller suburbs with grocery shops, new 
newsstands, post offices, cinemas, and gardens. Violent engagements raged through these residential suburbs that now were ruined without mercy. There was hardly any reason for us to evade and spare them for the ruthless Bolshevik enemy. That was why we clung tight as long as possible in every small village, until the Bolsheviks had reached the flank or even had come behind us. Then we had to be quick and fight our way out. Several times every day we fought our way out of real death traps in this manner. The residential suburbs were our base where we tried to hold out as long as possible in order to give time for the defense further back to get organized. But in between, the struggle went on as violently, if not even faster, out in terrain that varied between dense forests and open fields, end quote. This is the landscape of the penultimate chapter of the Battle of Berlin, pine forest and quaint suburbs. This is where the SS and the Soviets unleash hell on one another. The next day, April 21st, Zhukov's forces entered the suburbs of Berlin to inaugurate one of the bloodiest and most important battles in human history, the Battle of Berlin itself. But that's next month's podcast. And that's another one in the books for me. I want to thank everyone who wrote in telling me how much they've enjoyed this series. A lot of you said you only wished I could cover more during each episode. I'm talking to you, Frank, from Farmington. If I could, I would. This is the busiest time of year for me, and I have obligations just like all of you. If any of you are multi-billionaires and want to finance my research, you know where to reach me. I'm talking to you, Elon Musk. So until I win the lottery, you're stuck having to wait some. I'll hit you guys up with a double episode sometime soon when I have time. All right. I've received an inordinate amount of emails asking about me personally. A lot of you out there want to know what I look like. Extremely handsome. What my opinion is about 17th century philosophy. Spinoza's insane. And what my blood type is. It's AB positive. If you want to know about me, I'll tell you, brother. I'm the guy dancing like a dork in his kitchen, spinning his six-year-old daughter in his arms, listening to The Cure's Friday, I'm in love. I see grins and laughter all the time. I accidentally laugh out loud during serious meetings. I laugh at politicians' lies. It's such a great comedy. In the morning, I've got a black coffee in my hand. In the evening, I take a glass of brown whiskey. In my mind, all the classics of the Western world whisper in my ear. Shakespeare, Milton, Homer, Tolkien, Christ. They are my best friends. I have a heritage. I'm part of a people. I'm filled with love. I take duty seriously. I pray every night. Sometimes I pray for you, but let's face facts. You need somebody praying for you, don't you? I care about you. I care about these stories. My sincerity is both a flaw and a strength. It's held me back in my career. My tongue isn't forked enough to hiss the lies I'm supposed to mouth. I've seen and enjoyed the greatest art of the world. My library overflows with wisdom. My heart overflows with gratitude. I meet deadlines. I work hard. I smile a lot. I write poetry. It gets rejected. I write books. They get rejected. I try for promotions. I get rejected. I don't give a shit. Five stars or no stars. The stories are good if the world was destroyed and I was telling them to the wind. And sometimes I do tell stories to the wind itself. The trees and stones are my only audiences. And sometimes the wind picks up and claps the tree limbs and I bow to them. And on those days, God himself sends the applause. The sun, a spotlight shining on me. There's sweet music in my heart, so much beautiful music. I wish you could hear it. These little shows are nothing compared to the music in my heart, the song pumping through the valves of my arteries, because I am your last poet. I am your last historian. I am the last of the Western intellectual tradition. And you'll find me dancing like a dork with my daughter, her blue eyes flashing, her white teeth gleaming, full hair whirling, 
love raining out of the very tiles of the floor itself. And because I give a damn about your emails, I've got to address an email I got from Cody from Memphis. Cody wanted to know my opinion about January 6th. Friends, brothers, countrymen. The most important thing about January 6th was one trial where the defendant Guy Reffitt's own son testified against him. Hear the voice of love. Before America, there was the family. And after America, there will be the family. Many of you listening to this have strains in your families. You don't treat your wife like a queen. I know you. You think, my wife isn't a queen, Luke. Brother, in her mind, she's the empress of the universe, and she expects you to treat her that way. And if you have a son that cares more about politics than he does his own father, you don't need to be anywhere near the Capitol. You need to be fixing that relationship. You need to be honoring that queen laying next to you in the bed. You need to be dancing with that six-year-old in the kitchen, listening to stupid 80s music, the neighbors shaking their heads at you as they walk by. How many of you women have left a dank, sordid bedroom feeling used, knowing you were a dumpster for a man's lust, knowing in your heart of hearts that what you just did was wrong and evil. And how many of you men have abused your sisters and laughed about it and watched horrid, wretched pornography films where it's blatant the actress is being abused? She can't even disguise her displeasure for the corrupting money commanding her abuse, and then you, even you yourself, laughed about it. A corrupt people brings forth corrupt fruit. You don't need to go to Washington to find corruption. You're stewing in it. A piece of tough, rotting meat marinating in cultural breakdowns. A teabag steeping in corruption. You think corruption hasn't always existed? You think it's something new? Let me tell you what is new in the history of mankind. The breakdown of the family, sons turning on their own fathers, daughters spitting on their own mothers. That's what's new in history. What's more important, one election or your own son? Lyndon Johnson stole a Texas election. No one cares. Nixon illegally funded George Wallace's opposition in Alabama. No one gives a damn. No one even remembers it except me and five other people. Republican, Democrat, corruption knows no political party. My party is my family. My party is my people. My party is the laws of my fathers. Let the politicians play their games and let the money change hands, but keep your sons and your daughters loyal to you. And if you don't believe me, hear the voice of divinity itself. Quote, You've heard it said by our forefathers, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of eternal judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, You're worthless, shall be in danger of the jailhouse. But whosoever shall say to his kinsman, You're a fool, shall be in danger of hell itself. Therefore, if you are paying your taxes, and then remember that your brother has anything against you, leave there your taxes unfinished and send them in late. Make haste and be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and finish your taxes. Then the children of Abraham will be free once again. Thus it was, thus it is, thus it ever shall be. But until then, you sons of Abraham, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and one more time I'm wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye.